Welcome back to Bible time. 1 Thessalonians 5.15 See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good both among yourselves and to all men. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that you'd help us to rightly divide the word of truth and obey it. Give us understanding. Give me unction and utterance. Anoint your word, Lord. Anoint the preaching of your word. Use this in people's lives. Lord, use it in my life and use it in the lives of those that are here, those that are going to listen online, and let thy will be done here in thy name. Exalt in thy son, Jesus Christ, lifted up. In Jesus' name, amen. This passage of scripture is just as much Bible as the part of the Bible that says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ thou shalt, and thou shalt be saved. This part of the Bible is just as much Bible as the part that says that Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. Now you can go and get saved believing on the Lord Jesus Christ that he died and he was buried and he rose again the third day and never in your life hear the command of Christ to render not evil for evil. But it's still just as much God's will and it's just as much Bible whether you ever hear it or not. There's a lot of people that are going to go to heaven who fighting for their rights, battling with their neighbors, having arguments with everybody they come into contact with, taking people to court left and right and winning court battles and they're still going to go to heaven because they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. They're obeying Christ. Now some of you say, no, if you love Christ, you'll keep his commandments because you keep the commandments perfectly and there's never any commandments that you break in any situation. And there's never been a time in your life since you were saved where you were ever ignorant. You always lived in a perfect state ever since you were saved. Now, I'm being facetious, and you know that to be true. And there's there's things that, you know, some pe- to some people, this is the most important thing after you're saved. And to the next person, that's the most important. The most important thing after you're saved is to be like Jesus and follow Jesus. I'm reminded of a group of Christians up in the mountains of China in the 30s who were dealing in opium. They had just gotten saved from demonism and occult powers and spiritism, and the missionary had only been with them a short time. They had thrown down their demon altars, their devil altars, and burned their implements of witchcraft and had begun to try and follow Christ. They had a minimal amount of scriptures translated into their language, and very few people that could read even amongst them, even um, even if they had the scriptures. So they had very little to go off of. And there was a police, um, a police party from China going up into the mountains to suppress the opium trade and to stamp out some of the opium growers that were trading opium down in the valley. They were going up to the source to take out the opium farms. It just so happened that um, these Lisu were some of the... M- main producers of opium and it was one of their main sources of livelihood so they gathered together and they sharpened their their knives and they got their arrows ready and they poisoned the tips of their arrows and they got ready for a battle and they made sure their bows were strung this is in the 30s the chinese military and the chinese police were coming up with guns and here are these aboriginal tribes up in the mountains with their bows and their arrows getting ready to try and do battle with these Chinese policemen. 
So once they got their knives sharpened and their bows and they're ready and their arrows poisoned, they gathered at their little crude church house hut and they had a prayer meeting to ask God for mercy and to ask God for strength and victory in the coming battle. God answered their prayer in a way they didn't expect. The Chinese officials went the other direction and stamped out some other different opium farms than theirs. And it wasn't till a couple months later when the missionary came back and heard of the great answer to prayer that these Lisu were testifying to that he realized what had almost happened and was able to instruct them more fully in the scriptures. But if you want to say that they were not saved, I have a problem with that. And God does too. These people had turned from their idolatry. They turned from their devils, but they did not understand God's will in this area. And God in his mercy heard their prayer, even though he didn't give them victory in battle, he turned it and he delayed the conflict until these Christians could have time for God to work some things out of their life. You know, we're all, we're all of us, as they like to say, a work in progress. I'm the first one to cringe when I hear that phrase. We're all a work in progress because most of the time, the people that I, that I have experienced saying we're all a work in progress are using that as, as an excuse to continue in sin and have turned the grace of God into lasciviousness. So it really makes me cringe when I hear it, but it's still true even though I cringe. Did you know that just how you that how you feel about something doesn't de- determine whether or not it's true or false? Here, the word of God says, See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. Now, seven different men can read this text and have seven different interpretations. We looked in the Bible how that the Bible is self-existent, self-defining, self-interpreting, self-explaining. The Bible is it's is a self-defining book and we must go to the bible for the bible definition of what the bible is saying Today, I don't want to um, champion the cause of those that would um, bypass this verse and find workarounds to excuse rendering evil to others. I don't want to champion the cause of those that would say that nobody is ever supposed to do anything of any kind of defense or involvement in the world that you live in. And all of the extremes of all the different viewpoints and the different people's opinions today, by God's grace, what we want to do is look at what the Bible says, rightly divide it and obey it. That is our responsibility. It's not our responsibility to champion a denominational line, a denominational distinctive. It's our job to champion the word of God and preach the word of God. Go to Matthew chapter five. Here in Matthew chapter 5, we're going to start um, back in verse 21, but verse 38 um, and verse 39 will be, this is is really our target where we're trying to get. So let's read those and then we're going to back up and get some context. Verse 38, ye have heard that it hath been said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. Here Jesus Christ said that ye resist not evil. What does that mean? Not what does that what does your church say that means? Not what does your grandma say that means? What does God mean by that in the Bible? 
David Livingston was a missionary in Africa, and there was a man-eating lion that was destroying the people in that area. Every night, he would carry off another human being. This lion had to be dealt with. David Livingston had a rifle for hunting, and he went out with his rifle and confronted that wild beast. As the story goes, they found the lion in a deep thicket, and whenever David Livingston confronted the lion, he was at such a short range that he had only time for one shot. The lion turned towards him and he did not have an open shot and he wasn't sure he could kill it so he waited and the lion crouched and the lion got ready and the lion jumped and lunged at David Livingston and right at the key moment as that lion jumped it exposed its chest and David Livingston fired a shot right through the heart of the lion. As the lion died in the air in the act of lunging at David Livingston its great paw swept across and caught David Livingston in the shoulder and nearly killed him on the spot. Knocked him to the ground, shredded his shoulder. The natives thought he was dead. They picked him up and bound up his wounds and took him back to the village. And there they nursed him back to health as best they could. And David Livingston did recover, though he would carry those scars to his grave from the encounter with the lion. In that case, David Livingston resisted evil. Now, that evil, you might say, well, that's not really evil. God talks about evil occurrence, evil beasts. Job talked about the evil that came upon him when the wind smote the four corners of the house his children were feasting in, and they all died in the collapse of that house. Evil can be a man doing something to you. It can be a beast doing something to you. It can be a devil doing something to you. Evil can be something that we would call happenstance or chance. Evil comes in many shapes and many forms. God said, I create the light, I create good, I create the light and the evil. He said, the light and the darkness, I create good and evil. That's in Deuteronomy chapter 32 that God said that. I'm going to turn there real quick if I can find that verse. It says in Deuteronomy 32 and verse 39, See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God with me. I kill and I make alive, I wound and I heal. That's not the verse that I was looking for, but there's a verse where God says that he also creates evil, and he does. And for those that fight against God, God creates evil for them, but God will recompense that evil to the evil, and he'll recompense good to the good. But at the same time, if you look here in our text in Matthew 5, not the text that we're studying on today, he says down in verse 45, that ye may be the children of your father, which is in heaven, for he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same. If ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than other? Do not even the publicans so. Now, here in this text in Matthew 5, he says, Ye have heard that it has been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say unto you that ye resist not evil. There was a man in India named Gandhi, and Gandhi liked this idea. Gandhi liked what Jesus said here, and Gandhi spoke highly of Jesus because of what Jesus said here. And Gandhi is reported to have said, I love the God of the Bible, but I don't love the people of the Bible. I don't love the people that claim to be Christians. Now, 
Now, Gandhi missed it. Not everybody that says they're a Christian is a Christian. In fact, most people are not. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And the, the pitiful thing about it is that while Gandhi respected some of the things about Christ, he missed some of the most important things about Christ, and he never turned as far as history records. He never turned in repentance to Jesus Christ as his Savior, and today he's suffering eye for eye, tooth for tooth. He's suffering today the very thing that he didn't like. He said an eye for an eye only makes the whole world blind. But did you know that Jesus was not saying that the law of God is not good? The Bible says the law is good and the commandment holy and just and good. The law of God is pure, the making wise the simple. Jesus Christ did not come to destroy the law. If you look back in chapter 5 and verse 17, Jesus said, think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. Jesus Christ came to establish the law. It says, he, Jesus said in verse 19, Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men, so he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. A lot of Christians like the ideas that Jesus presents, but they don't like the law upon which Jesus built his doctrines and ta- taught his doctrines. They do not like the the law that Jesus was teaching his doctrine from. Jesus is God. God never changes. Jesus is the God who appeared to Moses in the burning bush. Jesus is the God who appeared to the children of Israel on Mount Sinai. Jesus is the God who said, I am the Lord thy God, which hath brought thee out of the land of Egypt. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the waters under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down to thyself to them nor serve them for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children under the third and fourth generation of them that hate me and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. And he goes on there to verse 13, thou shalt not kill. And here in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, in verse 21, ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment, and whosoever shall say to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council, but whosoever shall say thou fool shall be in danger of hell fire. Here in this text, Jesus Christ teaches us that God said and his people said in years gone by, thou shalt not kill. But then Jesus said, but I say unto you, and as only Jesus Christ could do as the son of God, God in the flesh, the word became flesh. Jesus Christ added to the word of God and taught us a deeper understanding of the truths that God had given his people. The letter of the law, thou shalt not kill is not good enough. It says, whosoever is angry with his brother, 
father without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And here we see that God will not only judge the actions of men, but the heart motives of men. And Jesus here, as he taught this, was not undermining the law. He was not doing away with an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth whenever he said to resist not evil. Instead, Jesus was teaching a higher law. Jesus was teaching something beyond the law. But if you look at this very verse here, verse 22, you find that while he says thou shalt not kill, he reinforces something here. He reinforces first the judgment for those that are angry. Secondly, the counsel for those that say raka, which is a form of government and government judgment. And then thirdly, the, he re- also reinforces hellfire as the final consequence for rejecting God's law. So at the same time as he teaches a higher law, he establishes the law and he does not do away with the old. Rather, he brings in a new that transcends and goes beyond the old. He says, therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar and there remembers that thy brother hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar and go thy way. Now that gift to the altar was also something that was said by them of old time. That was also something in the Old Testament law. And he says, when you bring that gift, first be reconciled to thy brother and then come and offer thy gift. Jesus is teaching us here that it is the heart of the matter that he is driving at, that Jesus is looking to the heart, that God is dealing with the heart. God's not so much interested in your high and holy piety on the outside as he is in your high and holy piety on the inside that you ought to have that should produce true high and holy piety on the outside. A lot of times we have all our big pious ideas and we go to God, God's word, and we read it as the letter of the law. And instead of obeying the spirit of the law, we bring ourselves and everybody around us into bondage uh, to the letter of the law while failing to fulfill the spirit of the law. Jesus is teaching between the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. He says in verse 25, agree with thine adversary quickly whilst thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge and the judge deliver thee to the officer and thou be cast into prison. Jesus did not here condemn the judge. Jesus did not condemn the officer. He did not even condemn the prison, but rather he told you, you better watch out because the law is going to get you if you transgress the law. He says, Verily I say unto thee, thou shalt by no means come out thence till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. Even so it is today. If you come to God keeping the letter of the law, but you have not reconciled yourself with God, you will have an adversary in heaven. And if you do not make make agree with thine adversary quickly, if you do not repent of your sin and turn to God through the blood of Jesus Christ, the your adversary will deliver deliver thee to the judge and the judge deliver thee to the officer and thou be cast into prison. The final judgment being the lake of fire. There is an eternal application here and there is a temporal application. Verse 27, ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, again, quoting the law of God, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Some would say here, then that's the same thing. 
it's the same thing to look with lust as it is to commit the act. That's absolutely not true. God said in his word that the man that commits the act should be stoned to death with that woman. But the man who thinks the thought, his sin goes on to judgment. What Jesus is teaching is not that it is the same sin, but that God will judge that sin. And that while the law dealt with the physical and the temporal, the Old Testament dealt primarily with the physical and the temporal, that God is going to deal with you in a heart level eternally. That it is what is in your heart that is going to matter. And Jesus is establishing that the spirit of the law is a higher level than the letter of the law. He says in verse 29, if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Now, your body being cast into hell is evidence that God is going to render evil for evil one day. The Bible says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. God is the judge of all the earth and God will do right and God will judge sin. Verse 31 there, he says, speaks of divorce. He goes on in verse 33. Again, ye have heard that it hath been said by them of old time, thou shalt not forswear thyself. But he says in verse 34, but I say unto you, swear not at all. Verse 37, let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay, for whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. And there's another, yet another application of the word evil. So then he gets to verse 38, and here we are ready to look at this concept in our text. See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. Ye have heard that it hath been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you that ye resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain. Give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn thou not away. Now there are those in their carnal flesh who would read this passage and lock this application, lock all the understanding of this tur- of this verse, of these passages, down to a temporal set of letter of the law rules that they try to live by to prove that they're right with God, all the while in their heart rendering evil for evil all the while making little rules in this set of circumstances I do this in this little set of circumstances I do that and missing the whole spirit of the law that you ever follow that which is good both among yourselves and to all men that you not look to your own things but every man also on the things of others that you love your neighbor as yourself by the way when your neighbor is doing evil and you see him doing evil the Bible says thou shalt in any wise rebuke him and not suffer sin in thy neighbor, Leviticus 19. And go ahead and turn there real quickly, and we'll see the context of the so-called golden rule, Leviticus 19. Most people have never read the act, what it actually says. Um, in verse 18 of Leviticus 19, it says, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if you look at verse at these other verses, 15, 16, 17, 18, what it says here, look especially at 17, thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart, thou shalt in any 
wise rebuke thy neighbor and not suffer sin upon him. Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. Here God makes a clear distinction between righteous judgment and execution of biblical authority and the heart of vengeance. Now a judge can sit on the bench with vile hatred coursing through his heart and through every fiber of his body as he passes a accurately lawful judgment against a malefactor. And that judge will be avenging himself while upholding the law. In the same situation with the same malefactor, another judge who would hopefully be a Christian judge in that case. Some of you just lost, just I just lost you right there. But in any case, hopefully he's a Christian judge and he would have nothing but pity and love in his heart for that malefactor, but yet would execute righteous judgment. How can these two things be true? Well, let's look at this real quick, not get bogged down on it and keep moving. Listen, you've got to rightly divide the word of truth. Romans 13, 4 says that rulers are a terror to evil work. Hebrews 12, 5 says that fathers chasten their children and commends that as right and godly. The And also that your heavenly father chastens his children and uses the analogy of earthly fathers being godlike, being like God in their chastening of their children. 1 Corinthians 5 commands the church to execute judgment in its missed whenever someone is bringing evil into the church, defiling the church, spreading wickedness in the church. The Bible gives clear leading of how to resist that evil authoritatively within a set jurisdiction. But as what is your response as a Christian to the man that is bringing in the evil? If your response is vengeance, you are wrong. The Bible says, render not evil for evil. He says, see that none render evil for evil unto any man. Jesus said, I say unto you that ye resist not evil. He said, if one would sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, give him thy cloak also. But yet here in first Corinthians chapter six, the Bible says that Paul here, he rebukes the church for taking brothers to court. And he says, why would you go to court before the unbelievers? He says, set the least that are esteemed in the church to judge and come together and have a judgment and abide by it. And by the way, if a man won't abide by that judgment. He's to be considered a heathen and a publican and to be cut off from fellowship within the church, but the, but not as an enemy, not as an enemy, but as one who has transgressed God's law. The Bible says to mark them that cause division and offenses among you and to have no fellowship with them. That is a form of resisting evil. So just like the Bible says, thou shalt not kill. And then God turns around and he says, thou shalt not kill in Exodus 20, But before he finishes the book of Exodus, he said, kill that guy, kill that guy, kill that guy, kill that guy, kill those guys. And just in that same sense, Christ here says, resist not evil. And then he turns around and tells us, resist the devil. Put away from yourselves that wicked person. I have judged already. Withdraw yourself from every brother that walketh disorderly. Chasten your children. Train them up in the way that they should go. So in the same sense that God uses 
uses the kill, thou shalt not kill, and then says to kill. God says in the word, resist not evil. And then he tells us other circumstances and times where you ought to resist the evil. What is the drive of this? What is the the spirit of this law that is being given us, this commandment of Christ through not only Christ in the Sermon on the Mount, but also the Holy Apostle Paul that God had raised up to give us this scripture when he said, see that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good both among yourselves and to all men. You can do, you can judge righteous judgment while personally laying aside all malice and not render evil yet render judgment that is considered evil by the person that's under the judgment. The Bible speaks of turning them over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh from amongst your own church. That's pretty evil. The devil's pretty evil. And allowing and asking God to remove the hedge of protection from off a wicked man within the church is is a in a sense, in one sense, from that man's perspective, that is evil. But from God's perspective, it is not. And that's the perspective you've got to get. This is the whole problem. This is where Christians split, schisms are built, church factions are separated one from another, the whole denominations are formed because we come with different human perspectives to God's word instead of getting God's righteous perspective. Let's look at this a little more closely. A judge may sentence a murderer to death with nothing but love and forgiveness in his heart personally and even evidence it by overlooking personal insults and injuries given him from the same malefactor. He may be able to sit there and slap contempt of court on that man for spitting at him, but he may, as a Christian judge, overlook that offense if it's personal to him. He may not have a choice if the offense is to the authority he represents. And this is where you have to get, we'll get to that in just a second. A father may chasten a rebellious son while weeping over the suffering of the same son, taking no thought for personal losses suffered by the rebellious actions of said son a church and its elder or pastor or bishop whichever you your church happens to call it may separate and withdraw from a brother removing him from fellowship with broken hearts full of forgiveness and desire for reconciliation and thereby resisting evil from a human perspective but judging righteous judgment from God's perspective where is the line how do you know what is right and how do you know what you should do The answer is that authority is ordained by God. If your interpretation of render evil for evil to no man, that none render evil for evil unto any man, if your interpretation of that is that anybody can do whatever they want to anybody around you and you've got to sit there with your hands folded, humming blessed assurance, if you even believe in that, and you're sitting there with your hands folded, watching them do evil and doing nothing about it, then you may be way out of balance depending on that circumstance. You see, God has ordained authority. God ordained the family as a human source of all human government. No human government exists without the family. 
The family is the basic raw material of every nation. Without the family, you have no nation. The Bible says that in the multitude of people is the prince's glory, and with the lack of people is his shame. No nation is a nation very long that doesn't have people to judge. And if a nation will not recognize the family and protect the God-given rights of the family, they will decline and every year by year by year, they will decline until they fall off the charts. The family is what God ordained first and the father God ordained to be the head of the home. The wife chooses willfully to put herself under the husband's authority when she marries him. That's God's way. Now, some of you out there with forced marriages didn't do it God's way, but that doesn't negate God's way. Isaac's bride, Rebecca, was asked if she would go with Eleazar, and she said, I will go with him, and she went willfully by her own choice. It's never been God's design for the woman to be some kind of pawn that's just traded around by a bunch of men. God has given the woman choice, but God has given the man authority in the home. Both are equally true, and it doesn't make God a chauvinist for having chosen the man to be the head of the home. It makes you a rebel if you buck it. Now, in the home, the man has authority. The woman submits, chooses willfully to submit to the authority of the husband if the home is operating the way God intends it with God's blessing on it. In the same way, a nation, God ordained nations in Genesis chapter 9, God brought in capital punishment. If a man shed the blood of man by the hand of man, shall man's blood be shed. And the capital punishment is the backbone, the strength of human government. If your government ceases to put to death murderers and rapists, your government will cease to exist in some short time because it will be overrun by wickedness and implode and fall in on itself because God gave the capital punishment for capital offenses of murder and rape, things like that. God gave capital punishment to give the government the backbone and the strength it needs to govern amongst men. The government is another sphere that God has ordained, hence Romans 13. The church is another sphere, another separate sphere that God has ordained. Now, if you are alive on the face of the earth, you can either be a hermit and run and hide in the mountains all by yourself, somewhere where you don't have to interact with anybody, and then you can pretend you're not involved with any kind of government, and you can stay single and then not be involved in any kind of um, family government, far from your own family, maybe your parents died or something, and you can stay out of church and thereby not be involved in any, any of that government, but in all three cases, you'd be outside of the will of God. God ordained the family, God ordained the church, and God ordained the government and God put you under all three at some point and God may give you authority in all three at some point depending on who you are and what your what his purpose is for your life so in the family if God puts you in the authority of the family your job is to protect to judge righteous judgment to watch over to provide for that family as the father of that family and to judge righteous judgment within the family also to lead in conducting business with other families whose 
heads are their fathers. That's God's way, whether the world does it that way or not. Often the world doesn't, but that's God's way. And then if you're in, if you're a human being living in a country, the Bible classifies you as one of two types of people. This is Bible time. This isn't opinion time. This is Bible time. The Bible says if you are called, that's to be saved. If you're called as a free man, you're God's bond servant. And if you're called as a bond servant, you're God's free man. And God gives you two options. You're either a slave under the ownership of a government, or you are a free man and therefore have a part in a government. If you are a free man as a citizen of any country, you are a part of that country and of its government, whether you participate in this or that or the other or not. You are a part of that government. These three spheres are not a, listen, you don't have to choose, am I going to be part of the church or part of my family? You don't, you don't have to choose that. God made you part of both if you're saved. And if you're a human being, you're part of a third and that's government. And that church, once you are born again by the power of God, you have entered in where you are now a citizen of a heavenly kingdom, a spiritual kingdom that will someday rule on earth, but right now it doesn't. So this gives you a triple responsibility, a responsibility to your family, a responsibility to your nation, and a responsibility to God's church above all all three of those spheres of judgment or or of government, God reigns supreme. You will answer to God for how you interact in the family. You will act answer to God for how you interact in the government and you will answer to God for how you interact in the church house. These do not have, these are not mutually exclusive. It's not like, Oh, I'm part of the church. That means that I cannot be part of government. That's hogwash. The Bible says that you're in the world, but not of the world. And as you're in the world, you're a citizen, a stranger and pilgrim in the world, a citizen of another kingdom, another country, but in every practical reality of life, you are part of a country. And if you are part of a country, you're part of that country, whether you participate in it or not. This is such a state, this is such a point of contention amongst so many Christians, and it need not be. There's nothing here to fuss over. There's nothing here to fight over. What you need to do is do what God wants you to do and leave everybody else alone to do what God wants them to do. How involved should you be in government, in your local government? You need to get with God, get right with God. And the Bible says to ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. Philadelphia is a great example, and we've got two examples we'll look at real quick of places, Lord Lord being our help, we'll look real quick at Philadelphia and Jamestown. Old Jamestown was a secular place full of secular people that just were there to get money and get rich, and they nearly starved to death. The, the colony never really grew in the early American years. It took a long time for it to get traction, and it never got very good traction. It was a big mess. In the meantime, William Penn established Philadelphia and they established Philadelphia on godly rules and laws and the Quakers there um, they formed the gov- they formed that city government based on the law of God and then in came a whole bunch of other people from a whole bunch of other places a bunch of greedy people a bunch of wicked people and those people got involved in government and all of a sudden the Quakers had a very big dilemma 
The dilemma the Quakers had was that these evil people were doing things, were antagonistically attacking the city of Philadelphia and its God-honoring laws, and many of them felt like they could not stay in government because they would have to resist evil to stay in government. And so taking these scriptures out of context, they stepped down from the place of authority that God had given them, from the place that God had given them to govern, and they allowed their places to be filled with wicked, unlawful men that turned the city on its head and turned Philadelphia into a den of thieves and evil and wickedness. And the Quakers themselves who had built the city were basically, for the most part, thrust out of the city and thrust out by these that had taken the city. Now, some of you think the Quakers were right. Some of you think that they're wrong. Again, there's people are going to have different opinions. But the reality is here today, as you look at this, that Jesus Christ also resisted evil in some circumstances. We're going to look at Jesus as we finish this thing up. Considering Christ is the main goal of this whole lesson, we're going to get there in just a second. But when Jesus came into the temple and there were money changers in the temple, and the temple was Jesus's jurisdiction on earth far more than the nation of Israel was when they would not let him rule. They also wouldn't let him rule over the temple and eventually basically thrust him out of there. But Jesus Christ, when he came into the temple, made a whip of small cords and he drove out the money changers. That is resisting evil. Some would say, But that's Jesus. He can do it. Yes, he can. And yes, he's the God of all the earth. Yes, he's God in the flesh. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. So in that sense, yes, Jesus Christ as God has every right to execute vengeance and you do not. But Jesus Christ has given jurisdictions of authority here on earth. And if you have a jurisdiction of authority, you will answer to God for how you exercise it and how you execute it. And everybody I've ever met's got lines. Everybody I've ever met pretty much disagrees, at least somewhere, if they get down into the nitty gritty on how far they should go in resisting evil. One man says, if a robber breaks into my home, I'm going to try and shoot his foot. Another man says, I'm going to put him in a chokehold and tie him up, but I won't really hurt him. Another man says, I'm going to shoot him right in the face because he's attacking my family in the night. And the Bible says, if a thief be found breaking in the night and he be killed, that the blood is not on the man's hand, but on the thief's hands. And that man's got a point too. And they've all got a point. And you've got to let people mind God. You've got to let people follow God. But ultimately, you will give an account to God for how you handled your jurisdiction that God gives you. Pastors, you're going to give account for God for what evil you allow in your church as you resist not evil. Daddies, you're going to have to give account for God. If you sit there with your hands folded while the neighbor boy brings in pornography, you're going to have to give an account for God for having resisted not that evil that God God would have you to resist, that God would have you to get out of your home. There's a time and a place. There's time and judgment for everything in the Bible. The drive of this, let's get into this. Now, let's, having said that and gotten some context, hope uh, probably just stirred up the hornet's nest is what that's done. But if you're willing to submit yourself to the word of God and humble yourself and realize that it's not the letter, it's the spirit, cut other people some slack and move on. We can get into some really good, um, helpful scripture here today. Go to first Peter chapter two. Now, Jesus Christ, who we will consider is our chief example. And when Jesus Christ was taken there to the cross, he did not fight back. He did not threaten. He allowed them to take him to the cross. And again, there's a time 
and a place for everything under the sun. For the, there's a time for war and there's a time for peace. And here in 1 Peter 2.19, he says, For this is thankworthy of a man for conscience toward God and your grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow in his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Only Jesus Christ has ever done this perfectly. I've heard of some pretty amazing stories. Think of the man that was crossing the lake, running from his pursuers um, back in the, um, I don't know if it was the 1600s, I can't remember the time frame, but the Bible-believing Christian running across the frozen river saw his pursuer fall through a hole in the ice, and he stopped, turned, and went back and rescued his own pursuer, took him, and then he went the extra mile. He took that man back across the treacherous ice to the rest of his pursuers who arrested him and killed him for his faith. And that man's testimony is a powerful testimony and a good testimony. But don't think that just because he did that, everybody has to. Don't try and cookie cutter this thing down. We have to answer to God for our own selves. Ultimately, you are going to have to decide what God wants you to do. Jesus, speaking to the disciples, told them to flee from one city to another. There in the book of Matthew, I didn't write down that text I meant to today. Let's look at a couple more in 1 Peter. 1 Peter 3, 16. Here, um, he says, Having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil doing. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Then go to 1 Peter 4 and verse, um, let's see here. I lost the verse that I wanted. All right, look at verse Peter 4, 8. Here, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith. There's no greater um, propagator of evil than Satan himself. And here the word of God says, whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Juggling these three different jurisdictions and areas can be very difficult in this life. Juggling the jurisdiction of family, the jurisdiction of government, the jurisdiction of church, trying to keep everything in its proper place, and yet keep God at the head and be subject to God can be a very difficult situation. I know there's a lot of armchair Christians out there, armchair martyrs, who know what everybody ought to do in every circumstance, and they've got it all figured out. But until you are the one under the gun, until you're the one with the flames leaping up around your feet, you really don't know what you will do either, much less anybody else. So you better humble yourself down when you look at this subject of suffering. And I did write down that text. Let's go to Matthew chapter 10. There it is. 
Matthew chapter 10. I want you today to beware the martyr complex. The martyr complex. A martyr complex is what people get whenever they get in their minds that the holiest thing that you can possibly do is to suffer pain for Christ. That's not Bible. That's called asceticism. It comes from Gnostic teachings from the heretic origin, and that goes back even further than that. It goes way back throughout history. Buddhists have their martyrs too. Hindus have their martyrs. Muslims have their martyrs. Every religion out there has its martyrs. Just dying for what you believe doesn't make you holy. Okay? Matthew chapter 10 and verse 17. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils, and they will scourge you in their synagogues, and ye shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what ye shall speak, for it shall be given you in that same hour what ye shall speak. For it is not ye that speak, but the spirit of your father which speaketh in you. And the brother shall deliver up the brother to death, and the father, the, the child, and the children shall rise up again. Against their parents and cause them to be put to death, and ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endureth to the end shall be saved. Martyr com- complex often comes from the misapplication of this text, thinking that salvation is based on your suffering, and that the only sure way to know that you're a Christian and that you'll go to heaven is if you die for Christ as a martyr. That is a heresy. That is a lie. The Bible says in 1 John, these things are written unto you that ye may know that ye have everlasting life. It does not say say that these things are being done to you that you may know that you have everlasting life. There are people right now in the in the Philippine Islands, I don't know if it's happening right now, but it was common in the past couple decades for people to go and voluntarily be crucified to prove their affection for Christ. Just suffering doesn't make you a Christian. It doesn't make you obedient to the Lord. There's a couple things to note here as we look at this. And as it says, they that endure to the end shall be saved. First of all, you must rightly divide the word of truth. All scripture is given by God for doctrine, for reproof, for exhortation and righteousness. Matthew 10, Matthew 5, Matthew, um, Matthew 20. Every chapter of the word of God is for you. But it might not be written directly to you, and the application needs to be carefully weighed against the rest of Scripture so that you can obey God. You say, that's a cop-out. I say, no, you're the one with the cop-out because you don't want to do the work. You're too lazy to get down to brass tacks and get into the Word of God and find out what God actually means. So you're just going to make it say what you want it to say and go on and preach your lazy religion. Beware the martyr complex and beware fake religious laziness and the fake religious lazy martyr syndrome. You need to be willing to do whatever God asks you to do, even if that means live for Jesus and not die for Jesus. Here where he's talking and he says that they shall deliver you up and he that endureth to the end shall be saved. He is preaching here to the Jews who are preaching the kingdom gospel. The 12 apostles sent out to preach only in the 12 tribes and to the 12 tribes and only exclusively to them of the kingdom of God that was there on earth when Jesus did this. This does not mean that the verses do not apply to you. They do. But you've got to figure out by weighing other scriptures against it and rightly dividing the word of truth, how it applies.
And that takes work and it takes study. By the way, I can't tell you entirely. I'll try to tell you a little bit and help you out here, but ultimately you are going to have to study the Bible for yourself and figure out the application that God wants you to make. Should you run away whenever they come after you? Should you stand when they come after you? Should you fight back? Some people say there's no way that could be godly. There are circumstances where God commands you to. And if you won't fight back in some certain circumstances, you would be sinning and failing to keep your do your duty as a Christian. There's listen, it's not just cut and dried. The spirit of the law is what you've got to get. Consider Christ, follow Christ. There were days Christ avoided out of the people's presence. And there was one day Christ got a whip and drove some of them out. And there'll be a day Christ comes back as a judge in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God. It's not your job to take vengeance, but it is your job to judge righteous judgment. And you're going to be the one that has to stand whenever that time comes in your life. So you better know what God would have you to do and not just be sitting there on your denominational lines. You know what usually happens, by the way, with lazy religion? Lazy, oh, I'm just going to take that verse out of context and not study the Bible. Usually what happens is they hold everybody else to the letter of the law, but as soon as it gets tough, they find a loophole for themselves. That's usually how it works. Beware, lazy, fake religion. Get in your Bible and study it. So here Jesus is preaching the kingdom gospel and he's speaking here to them. If you look at other passages, he uses this endure to the end, particularly in Matthew 24, dealing with the tribulation. And he's talking about the saving of the physical body. He is not talking about saving you from your sins. You say, that's a cop out. All right, go to Romans 13. It says, if you don't obey the magistrate, that you'll receive damnation. Does that mean if you disobey the police officer that you're going to go to hell? You've got to rightly divide the word of truth. Damnation is not always talking about hellfire. Neither is condemnation. Neither is salvation. You have to rightly divide the word of truth. He says, when they persecute you in this city, flee ye into another. I, for verily I say unto you, ye shall not have gone over the cities of Israel till the Son of Man be come. So here he tells his disciples that there's a time to flee. And we find in the Acts of the Apostles many times people fled. Peter fled Jerusalem. Many Christians fled Jerusalem and preached the word everywhere. Paul was let down out of a window in a basket to escape the city of Damascus and he went on to live a fruitful life. Now also another thing that Paul did whenever Paul went up there in Jerusalem and he preached the gospel to his people. Pay attention here. Hold on. Hold on to your hats. We're talking about Bible here. Paul up there at Jerusalem preached the gospel. Or Actually, he wasn't even preaching when the Jews first came. He was going to preach. And when those people came and grabbed him and they were going to beat him, the governor came and rescued Paul. Paul spoke to the people. The people wouldn't listen. And when Paul was going to be beat, he told them, is it lawful for you to beat a Roman uncondemned? And he had already used that again back at Philippi to buy grace for the local church after he had been beaten. And if you look in your Bible, listen today, we better get humble. You better get humble. There were times Paul took the beatings and there were times Paul didn't take the beatings. There were times Paul used law to intervene and stop the beating. 
And there were times Paul took it and then used law to give space to the church. And then there were times Paul took it and never said anything about it. And there was one time Paul was stoned to death and went back into the city and preached again. It's not all cookie cutter. It's not all cut and dry. Get off your high religious horse and start following Jesus. The idea is to look to Jesus and follow Jesus. It's not all cookie cutter. Hebrews chapter 12. Now, again, we want it to be cookie cutter because we're lazy and we don't want to read the Bible, study the Bible, be filled with the Holy Spirit of God and obey the Lord. We want to be our own king and our own leader. The Bible says in Hebrews 12, wherefore seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. Our text here in First Thessalonians says, See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. Sometimes following that which is good, Good forces you into a position of resisting evil. You say, how can that be true? I hope you've got it already. If some of you got it, if you are in a position of authority over a jurisdiction, you are to do good to all men. Let me throw something at you and let's just get your thinker thinking. Good includes righteous judgment. God is good. That doesn't mean he's all fluffy and bunnies and butterflies. God is good. He judges righteous judgment. He causes the rain to fall on the evil and the good, but God also um, judges the enemy. And praise God he does. God stops wickedness all the time in this world. And to do good to both people, you will have to do a good thing that somebody may think is evil sooner or later. And you do that all the time. It happens all the time in business. It happens all the day, all the time in the workplace where you have to judge righteous judgment and do good to all men, even though not everybody thinks that it's good. The question is, who thinks it's good? God is the one that's in charge here. This is God's perspective that we have to get. If it's good to defend an innocent person, then it's good to do that. Whether the person you're defending them from thinks it's good or not. You think of a little child that's being beaten by a stranger on the street and the daddy stands there and says, render not evil for evil. And he just stands there and watches it happen for no reason. God doesn't call that good. God says that we should defend the fatherless and God is a defender of the fatherless. And there that man could lovingly with no malice and no intent to do any kind of harm other than to protect his child could defend that child from that man and it would be good for the child and good for the man who is going to have to face God and give an account for what he's done to the child. And so that leaves it in God's hand as far as the evil's concerned, and it's still good even though you're 
in some people's idea, in some people's perspective, rendering evil for evil. It doesn't matter what other people think. It doesn't matter what your neighbor thinks, your denomination thinks. It matters what God thinks. We've got to get back to what God thinks. God says do good to all men, and God's idea of good might not be your idea. It might not be my idea. We've got to get God's idea of good. We need to lay down our own rights. That's what this is really all about. The whole idea of not rendering evil for evil is that I lay my own self down. I allow myself to be crucified with Christ. I'm not doing what I'm doing for personal gain, personal motivation. Instead, I'm doing it for God, His glory, the advancement of the gospel, and my love for fellow men. And there's a lot of hard and difficult things that have to be done for for Christ and for His glory and for the good of my fellow men. That doesn't make it evil just because somebody else thinks it is. Let's get back to the Bible. Let's get back to what the Bible has to say. If you want to, I'll just throw this out. You can study. Jephthah in Judges chapter 11 and how Jephthah defended his jurisdiction, defended his people, and he did it in a way that was not rendering evil for evil, and God honored Jephthah for it. By the way, Judges is just as much the Bible as Matthew chapter 10. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that you'd help us to honor you, help us to rightly divide your word, help us to lay down our own rights, our own desires, our own um, our own ideas, help us to get your perspective, help us to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves, and Lord God, when these situations arise that we don't know what to do, I just pray that you'd give us wisdom and help us to follow you and trust you and to obey you and not render evil for evil to any man, but to always follow that which is good to all men. In Jesus' name, amen.